The Other Side of the News is a current and dynamic companion to augment the discussions from The Other Side of Midnight. We investigate, explore, and extrapolate facts to gain better understanding of current affairs and events, and thus... To bring comfort and calm to our wide international audience. It's a spontaneous commentary... Based on well-verified references vetted through vigilance and discernment. Our desire, desire is to awaken your imagination with questions. Questions that have not been asked, yet need answering. The other side of the news is a place where you can come and be with us in community. Learning new things, asking questions, getting compelling answers, and interesting viewpoints. It's about curiosity. We present thought-provoking questions to incite your mind, propelling you to see the world in another way. Propelling you to see the world in another way clear insights and fresh perspectives on global events. Tune in for a balanced view of the other side of the news. Welcome. My name is Timothy Saunders. I'm one of your trio of co-hosts on this 47th edition of The Other Side of the News. I'm speaking to you this early morning from a much more spring-like southwest Turkey, which for many of you may be situated on the other side of the planet. As the dawn chorus begins to practice its scales here, hopefully many of you are relaxing into your evening, eager to hear some fascinating insights from our latest guest. It is wonderful to return to warmer climes after my extended visit to Kiev. The difference in temperature between my late night departure and my eventual arrival much further south was 44 degrees centigrade. While this latest excursion and this extreme difference in weather is fascinating, what stays more fresh in my mind is how this sectional view, which I cut through multiple countries and cultures during my travels, shows further evidence of more or less exactly the same lockdown protocols with no apparent regard for the differences one would expect from differing genetics, climate, culture, population, density, etc, etc. Surely in a real pandemic, the virus would swarm and multiply organically, requiring more or less stringent or no protocols as appropriate. However, what we continue to see across the broad spectrum of the world is the same protocols rolled out in lockstep supported by more or less the same statistics, driven by the same PCR cases, but not deaths. While some countries and regions interpret the rules more strictly than others, I'm clearly reminded how these protocols have very little to do with health. I will soon be joined by co-host and producer Kintia, together with co-host and researcher Annette Driscoll, who are speaking this evening, as usual, from the Bay Area in California. This show is entitled Harvesting Sovereignty. On touching down in Turkey while showing my documents at passport control with one foot almost over the line, I was called back and told I need to sign another form and go into a 14-day quarantine. The border police confidently informed me that all passengers originating from the UK, Denmark and Brazil are obliged to quarantine due to the terrible new COVID cousins or strains that have been reported in an attempt to fearmonger the flock to succumb to the jab. It took a little while for me to iron this out, to correct this kind gentleman. Yes, while I originate from the UK, 
I've not been there since well before 2019. And so how could I have brought the COVID-19 with me? After a few scratches of the head and not even a thought to look at my negative PCR, whatever good that would do, I was allowed to proceed. Yet another example that underlines this pandemic is not about health, but all about the lockdown protocol and the control upon us. As serendipity would have it, I was sent a video of a Canadian gentleman who was clearly better prepared than I. Keith, please play sound excerpt A. Hi. Yes, because I have a medical condition, so I don't need to wear one. And I'm also a Canadian citizen, and this is a violation of our charter rights, Section 6, and a violation of the Emergency Act 14.1. So I'm going to be declining your test today. Okay, Thank you very much. Okay. No problem. I'll happily do that. Everybody in here, if you are a Canadian citizen, simply deny the test, deny their quarantine, and there's nothing you can do. They cannot stop you. They cannot force you. You are a citizen. You have rights. If you want to wait in the line for two hours, let them put shit up your nose. Go right ahead. But if you have a brain and you have balls, just say no. Okay, I will not yell. That's true. But I just want you guys to acknowledge for 91,000 people watching that anybody can refuse the test. Perfect. Thank you. You guys hear that? Straight from the horse's mouth, straight from the police, refuse the test. Ooh, I'm getting a ticket. Oh, not another one of those tickets. You know, tell everybody how many people have been convicted of those tickets in Canada. Answer? Zero. How many people have been charged? Thousands. How many people convicted? Zero. Why? It's a violation of our charter rights. So when that ticket goes to court, they throw it the fuck out. It's that simple. So I'm waiting for my little fine. Thanks, guys. I just want everybody to acknowledge that this is perfectly legal, perfectly acceptable. Thank you. That was the voice of Chris Skye entering Pearson Airport. While this video brought a smile to my face, I did reflect on my own recent travels and why I did not think of doing something similar myself. I must admit, with an extremely limited grasp of the Ukrainian language, and even with a reasonable level of Turkish, my language skills were simply not up to the occasion. That, and the fact it was necessary for me to present a negative PCR in order to gain my initial boarding pass. While this did not work for me, I would greatly encourage all of you to adopt a non-conform strategy to push back to all these lockdown measures as I still believe one of the best ways for us to exit this totally unnecessary jungle of administration intended to distract us from this demolition of the old system is for us to continue bringing awareness to each and everyone around us that this pandemic goes without any validation. I believe it is our responsibility to keep reminding the sleepwalkers around us until we reach a tipping point where the minority's house of cards will simply fold, leaving nothing more than a flurry of jokers. Across the globe, demonstrations continue. Restaurants are reopening illegally. Court cases are being filed against the state. This wave of truth continues to build momentum. People in apparent authority, police, army, medical personnel, civil servants, government, etc., must be asking questions, as the mainstream narrative is so full of holes that even children can see through their lies. At some point, they, the people in apparent authority, will need to choose a side to continue supporting the minority, or to choose for truth and for the good of humanity, including themselves. And I would imagine it would not take very much to tip the balance. For example, extreme weather, food shortages, and the collapse of fiat currencies. 
Well, these events are already at our doorstep, and I doubt if they can continue to be hidden in plain sight very much longer. While this may seem on the surface a prediction of doom and gloom, I believe it is exactly what is required to catalyze the transformation humanity is long overdue to make. I very much look forward to hearing our guests' perspective regarding this essential awakening process, all with a view to illuminate the best path to lead us to a positive outcome. You may find us at www.theothersideofmidnight.com, click on the other side of the news in the drop-down menu, or kindly scroll down to tonight's white The Other Side of the News show banner. There you will see details for this show, quick links to our bios, as well as links to our show items, references, and selected research. As usual, there is a huge collection of information to read, watch, and listen to, most of which has been handpicked from independent sources. I urge you to study them and even download your own copies sooner than later, as the censorship robots are working around the clock to rewrite our history in real time. During the last week, we have been inundated by a deluge of remarkable events and headlines reported in the news. To discuss and present each topic in correct context could all too easily fill up an entire show by itself. As the other side of the news is not per se a typical news show, and in order to make the best use of our available airtime, I believe we should plot a direct course to greet the rest of our team and to introduce our guest. Despite the initial unpleasant realization of the truth, you will see there is light at the end of the tunnel. There is an increasing number of respected journalists, writers, politicians, doctors, lawyers, influencers, artists, activists, and innovators who are wide awake and are already making great impact. All they require from you is to unplug from the mainstream and social media propaganda, to make your own independent research and to stop acquiescing and to stand up for what you believe in with respect to others. Curtis Stone, our guest, is such an individual. I look forward to him joining us very shortly. I believe we also have a special update from Darlene Andy. Good evening, Kintia. Good evening, Aneta. Thank you, Timothy. And good evening, Kintia. It's good to be back. And I wish I had some really great things to talk about. Actually, there's plenty of great things happening. But I'm going to focus on something that is really important for us to understand. And... This is not a negotiable thing. This is factually what's going on. So when people ask you, what is it that's going on? And, you know, where's the data? So I'm not putting a lot of items this week because I want you to really focus on this. I'm putting in my items the straight from the CDC site, the statistics on the adverse effects of vaccines. They have a reporting. It's voluntary. They say that it's only about 10%. Um, that's what the CDC says. I'm just going straight off their data. So what I did was I put in uh, vaccines and I just put in vaccines in general. Didn't specify anything. Put in the adverse effect of death, which is a pretty significant one. And I had done it last week and it was uh, 710 people had died in the reporting period. So I can only trim it to per month the way it is. So I put in December January and February. And there were 710. They updated every Friday. So today being Friday, I've updated again. And now there are 894. And that's bad enough, you know, because this is, remember, voluntary and not everybody is reported in this particular data piece I'm referring to here. But what is really disturbing about it is the percentile of 
deaths that are caused from the actual COVID-19 vaccines. So in here we have Moderna and the Pfizer. And I will tell you right now, the math is this. It adds up to 94.68% of vaccine-related deaths are from the COVID vaccine. Not a real... Uh, not, not a real positive thing here. And then if you add in the flu vaccine, the seasonal flu vaccine, last week it was 4.4%. This week it's 3.6% only because uh, the, the COVID is taking even more of the percentile of the deaths that are caused by the vaccine industry. So we're up to 98.4% for the COVID uh, vaccines and the influenza together. So 94.68 with just the COVID and add another 3.36%, you've got 98.04, which sounds kind of like the numbers for COVID, they, uh, the, the death rate that they have. Because, they, you know, basically it's a relabeling game and they've taken the top causes of death and relabeled them COVID and making everything a COVID death. The interesting thing about it is if you want to look up, and I encourage you to search out your own data, your own statistics, but... If you look at the World Health Organization or even the CDC, you'll find that the death numbers are right in line with every year. There was no uptick. However, this year is a little different. Last night I had a really interesting conversation with a friend of mine. She is a mortician, and so she does a lot of funerals. And she also happens to be a director on a board of directors for a nursing home. So I asked her point blank last night. I said, so how are the, you know, how's your business? She goes, we're really, really busy. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, we've had a 25% uptick since January. We started as soon as the vaccines came in to where she's living. She said they've had a 25% uptick in business that is continuing to increase. Since the administration of the vaccines, a number of things have happened. They've suddenly had patients dropping over dead, which they had none in 2020. We've heard this from many, many, many sources, but you know, we're here we see it again. And she said that there are other people that are also having vaccine reactions. She gave me the example of a 94-year-old woman who was very active, actually still dancing, cognitively quite alert. Everything was good. She took the vaccine, took the second dose, and now she is not able to walk on her own. And she is very, very out of it mentally. So, but no coincidence there. Hmm? Her own father decided to take the vaccine, has had no issues in falling, and has fallen three times in this past week since taking the jab. So I don't know what people need to know about this <laughs> more than what I'm telling you. Uh, I just wanted to put out that you can get your own data the website it's the vaccine adverse event reporting system v-a-e-r-s results and you can find that on the cdc website and i think later on this week i'll do a little tutorial on how to get through that site it's not easy but once you understand once you have a little tutorial it's not hard it's just they don't make it it's not user friendly i think on purpose okay so that's that and then the other thing that I did want to talk about, it's about a northern Kentucky convent, and they received the mRNA developed 
COVID-19, they call it a vaccine. This is gene modification. Okay. Two days later, two died and 28 tested positive for the virus. Now, actually it's gone up to three. So out of 35, three have died. These are really the statistical odds that we're looking at. It is horrendous. And out of that, 28 test positive for the virus. Here's what's so interesting about this, and I have attached this article. These people were completely locked down. They were in quarantine. They didn't have anyone moving in or out for some time prior to this, and they still didn't after. So when they did this, they were, ex they were extremely careful because they really did believe in it, obviously, or you wouldn't get the vaccine. So they didn't have any outside exposure. So the only exposure they had was the vaccine. So they've lost three so far as, as this article as of February 10th, and it was the Pfizer vaccine. So it's important to keep the historical data in, in perspective here. So we have a, quote, disease of COVID-19, end quote, that has a survival rate of 99.07%. This is a recovery. It's not a survival rate. It's a recovery rate, actually. This is after they say they diagnosed it, and then the person who's had it has that kind of rate. What we see statistically in the death rates is the same death rates we see for age groups in general. There's no difference. So... To say that it affects older people, yes, because older people are more likely to die. But all these things are something to keep in mind when you're looking at statistics and how to evaluate them. So I just bring that up as a, a context. And also remember who has who's a stakeholder. Think about the people that are invested in this. Think about the patent owners, the people that have invested in Wuhan labs that were founders of Moderna, like Dr. Fraudji himself, all of those things, all of the above. And ask yourself, do you want to be taking an experimental vaccine? It's not a vaccine. It's gene therapy. Straight up, they'll tell you that on the Moderna website. They'll tell you that it's an operating system. So if you, you know, it's on paragraph two, by the way. Uh, if you doubt any of this, please do your own research. But please do your own research before you or a loved one goes and puts this in, the, in your body because it is not a reversible thing. So with that, I'm going to leave you with that thought there. And I just wanted to put that up there to have some more documentation. We have oodles and oodles of it. We've put a lot up over the past months to help people out, to be able to talk to people. But there is a point where trying to help people understand what's going on right now is like going back into a burning building to pull someone out, only to have them keep punching you in the face and demand evidence that the building is on fire even after they admit they can see flames. So this is kind of what we're dealing with right now. This is the level of brainwashing, the level that uh, the influence of the media. And this isn't just about vaccines or just about the pandemic. This is about all these different issues we have going on. So all I can say with that is, you know, to have compassion for them, but there's a point where they, ha they have their free will, they have their choice. And, People will make their choices, and the people that make a choice to move on and to do what they can do to make it a better place, a better planet to protect themselves and their families, really, I think it's, we're at a stage where we need to be aligning with that now. That's my personal view. So with that, I'm going to pass it back over, and I'm sorry I don't have a more positive message this week, 
Uh, there is plenty of positive stuff, by the way. Maybe that's what I'll cover next week. Okay. It's back to you, Kinthea. I am really excited to bring on our first guest tonight, my dear friend, Darlene Andy. She's an activist in Canada, and I've known her for many years. She's an authentic person, a beautiful being, and she is fighting for truth and fighting against the tyranny up there in Canada. So, Darlene, would you like to come on and give us an update of what is happening up north? Well, thank you very much. I'm in the province of uh, British Columbia. We are seeing almost full-out tyranny. One of the organizations that I represent, Action for Canada, again, that's Action with the number four, Canada. One of the uh, platforms and campaigns that they're doing is opening the churches. Pastor James Coates of the Grace Life Church was arrested for not complying with the orders where he, he was not to have people congregate. So we have a campaign that's ongoing that we are gathering pastors, mostly in British Columbia, but really we're looking for pastors right across Canada who recognize the need and the right under the uh, Constitution of Canada to assemble because the Constitution of Canada says under the supreme law of God that we have the right to freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, and uh, so many other things. Another factor that Action for Canada is speaking to, we are suing the government of British Columbia because we have a corrupt government uh, system. And this sort of intertwines with the work that I'm doing with David Lindsay of CLEAR, which is the Common Law Education and Rights Initiative, because there was a number of freedom fighters on Monday that went and visited their MLAs. Now, MLAs in Canada is sort of like your governors in the States. So I've been on several calls with David and these freedom fighters. And uh, we went on Monday to go and lobby these MLAs to hear what we wanted them to hear about what was happening in Canada and that they need to do their job. And the MLA that was in Kelowna chose not to show up to work that day. And there was several that didn't so there was a group of people, I believe 12 or 13 places in British Columbia where people went and rallied to let these MLAs know that we, the people, um, want them to do their job and bring in lawful rules that they need to let that the government know that we're not complying with these outlandish orders that they have in place, which are unconstitutional. Another big thing that we're doing with uh, Action for Canada is letting people know that the mask mandates that they're pushing in schools is child abuse. And David Lindsay of Clear is working very closely with Action for Canada and put together a very powerful document under the Infants Act um, that again is a resource that's on the Action for Canada website. And this is a document that parents can actually take to the school boards and basically let those school boards know that what they're doing is illegal. So we have many resources through Action for Canada that we want the government and those people that feel that they have authority over us to know that they have zero authority. And we want to hold them accountable because what they're doing is crimes against humanity and genocide. And, you know, we haven't even touched on what's happening in the... Um, elderly centers and things like that. 
I also was privy to being an MC at a rally in Kelowna, British Columbia. So in Kelowna, we had just such a cold, cold day, but we had, I'm going to say, 500 people that showed up. Our theme was children, and we had uh, four kids ranging from six to 15 that did such an incredible job. But I also want to speak to Jacob, who spoke not only at Kelowna, but at the rally in Vancouver. And this is a 15-year-old gentleman who uh, his parents actually took him out of school, which he fought a little bit. He didn't want to be homeschooled. He basically has had six death threats to him. And what is happening to society as a whole where we feel that when someone stands up for their rights and they choose to be different because they know their rights and freedoms as a man, woman, and child. You know, it's really horrific what happens to the character of people when they're complying and acquiescing, following these orders of the government, which are completely horrific and do not fall under our constitutional rights. So Ted Koontz, who you've also had as a guest on your radio program, he is the president of Vaccine Choice Canada. He spoke at our rally. He has ongoing calls where he, they're educating people and bringing together fabulous minds on what's happening with the vaccine and how we can fight against that, the PCR tests, what the healthcare system is doing. And again, they are complying to the rules of the government, which are unconstitutional. And he also attended a, uh, the bus that we took to the Vancouver rally where him and his brother represented Vaccine Choice Canada, again, are letting people know that not only are they teaching about what's happening in regards to vaccinations and how they're harming, particularly the children and the elderly, and they're kind of seeming to work their way in. This is about genocide on a global level, but also that he is representing Canada and working very closely with Rocco Galati because they are suing the government of Canada the ministers of Ontario, all the head officials, the Canadian Broadcast Corporation, and working very closely with Action for Canada. So these are three organizations that I work, they are in a rope, and together they're weaving a very tight bond because this is the pieces of the puzzle. Everyone has such an intricate part, and we're all working together. And Action for Canada, again with these two organizations that I spoke to, Clear and Vaccine Choice, has a campaign called Boots on the Ground. That, again, is something I'm very involved with. And every Wednesday at 6 o'clock, I host a call where we basically are educating volunteers because this is a grassroots movement where we are going into businesses and educating them on how to keep them in business and how to let them know that if they are mandating masks in their stores, that it's unconstitutional and that um, they are infringing on our rights and freedoms. So we go in with a package, we educate these businesses that they can be fined or sued up to $75,000 as a human rights violation. And so when someone hears that number, they tend to sometimes take pause. But what we're finding is that most of the businesses, they really don't know. They're simply acting on what the government is telling them to do and they're acquiescing because the businesses want to stay in business. But we've seen thousands and thousands of businesses go under. At the end of the day, one of the things that I really feel that this is all about is the 
new world order getting all that real estate for themselves, just like Bill Gates is getting all the farmland right now. So with that, I did want to share a couple of scenarios that uh, I feel people should know about. And I'm certain that you've heard of people coming uh, in from their travels, arriving at the airport. We had one lady whose son was uh, taken, uh, basically kidnapped and put into a quarantine camp. And uh, the conditions of these quarantine camps are absolutely horrific. And we hear words of more and more hotels actually becoming these quarantine camps. So that's something that we're definitely paying attention to. And then very quiet Canada has become uh, a place where people are taking the law into their own hands. So there was a gentleman who was shopping in Canadian Tire, which is sort of like a Home Depot, <laughs> you know, and went in without a mask. And he basically was accosted by four employees of Canadian Tire. So these were not the police. And they basically threw him down on the ground. He was uh, one of the employees had his arm around his neck. He was saying he couldn't breathe. He couldn't breathe. And the one employee was saying, well, you're still talking. So you could see the man was having difficulty. It took four Canadian Tire employees all in masks. They had put him completely on the ground. They were holding both of his legs and then they put him in handcuffs. So, you know, there's more that's going to be happening with this story, but it's really quite ironic when we hear places like North Dakota and Montana outlawing, you know, mandatory masking. And then you've got Canadian Tire employees taking their law into their own hands. So there's a definitely a yin and a yang happening there, happening there. And then what we also heard is that Trudeau hired security in these quarantine camps that allegedly sexually assaulted a woman in these quote-unquote COVID hotels. So there is a lot of definitely horrific things happening in Canada that um, I'm not even quite sure what to say about that in this moment. The only reason they've done that is because they know and have openly admitted that it's unenforceable. So if they kept everyone locked down over Christmas, they know that everyone's going to ignore it because you're going to go and see your family at Christmas. Of course you are. And they know that you've got 65 million people in the UK. You can't, you can't police 65 million people going to each other's houses for Christmas. You can't do it. There's not enough police officers. So what they've done to try and keep some kind of, you know, appearance of power is give us those days. So it's like, I know you're going around each other's houses, but we let you do it. Because that's better than keeping us locked down, us all doing it anyway, and them openly showing their weakness, which which they have, they can't enforce it. And, and the police chief, chief constables has said as much that it's unenforceable. And so that's what I think people need to realize is that all these music venues could open, all these theaters could open, all these restaurants could open, all these bars could open, as long as they all opened because then it's unenforceable. Hello everyone, my name's Gareth Ike. It's been a pleasure to talk on the other side of the news. Fantastic conversation with Kinthea, Timothy and Annetta. And I wish you all the best with a fantastic podcast. Cross my aching arms Body language clear Breathe my breaking heart Make my stand right here For action over hope Make my stand right here For action over hope
Richard C. Hoagland here. I'd like you to support The Other Side of Midnight by subscribing to Club 19.5 and thereby joining our unique and growing radio community. Tune in to listen to our fascinating guests, pioneers on the out there edge of science and thought, and gain access to exclusive member benefits. To do this, just visit our website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the navigator bar or in the left-hand column. Membership costs $19.95 per month. That's 33 tetrahedral cents a day. I mean, it's the price of a couple of cups of coffee. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to this show and literally hundreds of previous shows on hundreds of different topics going back to 2015 that we have done. Our archive shows have the commercials removed and you'll be able to download the mp3 files directly from the 19 point archives if you prefer to enhance your listener experience a new the other side of midnight podcast is being added to all show pages which will allow you to instantly search the show archives of radio with pictures thus easily accessing the corresponding show plus you can just as quickly access the entire podcast list when you're on the go I want to personally thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your continuing support, this show would literally not be on the air. Please continue supporting the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available, talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought, and if you like what you hear on the other side of midnight, tell your friends and continue growing the show by having them subscribe to Club 19.5 as well, because we need all of you. And when I say we need you, you're the reason we're doing all this. Hoagland, over and out. So welcome back to the other side of the news. Our guest tonight is Curtis Stone, and our show is called Harvesting Sovereignty. It's our 47th show. And co-hosting with me are Timothy Saunders, Annette Driscoll, and myself, Kinthea. So I'd like to introduce you to Curtis. Curtis Stone is a farmer, author, content creator, and entrepreneur, first gaining international recognition for the success of his urban farm, Green City Acres, in 2010. Curtis has since expanded into publishing, YouTube, online entrepreneurship, and tools manufacturing. His seminal book, The Urban Farmer, has been an Amazon bestseller since it was released in 2016 with the growth of his YouTube channel, has published two online courses, and he's launched a tools company called Paper Pot Company based out of California. And now, primarily, he publishes weekly videos to his website, fromthefield.tv. Curtis resides in Kelowna, British Columbia, Canada, with his wife and two children. Welcome to the show, Curtis. Happy to be here. Great, great. Well, I know that our audience has been looking at 
questions around food supplies and how we can be more self-sufficient. And I, I would like to know what got you into this? How did you come down this path? Well, it's been a long time coming. Um, I saw major problems happening um, in about 2007. I saw things happening uh, that I was paying attention to within the food system, also geopolitical issues and economic issues that kind of motivated me to start taking ownership and responsibility for my own life and my own existence. And that is, as you mentioned in the in the introduction, a, a path to sovereignty because um, being able to take responsibility for all the things that you need in your life, you know, food, water, energy, shelter, are um, a, a massive part of sovereignty, perhaps the most important part of it. And so, yeah, sort of kind of waking up to what things were happening, you know, 9-11 and things that I started to kind of see differently than the, the mainstream narrative and started to be awake to the fact that society was going to take a turn for the worse or has been for a long time, actually. But it looked like it was starting to accelerate then. And that's what kind of motivated me into uh, teaching myself how to be a farmer. And that's taken me in all kinds of different directions, as you kind of outlined in my my introduction there. But yeah, it really kind of started with things happening in 2007. And here we are in 2021. Look look at how insane the world is right now. So my my journey to and path to sovereignty through food and other means has um, really accelerated <laughs> with the insanity of the times that we're in. Was there a specific incident that pushed you to do this? Yeah, there was actually. There was a there was a very specific incident. I can recall it uh, like it was yesterday. Actually, there in uh, in late it was in the winter of two late winter two thousand seven. There was a freezing rainstorm in Montreal that crippled the city for like three days, and. Um, it was, we were starting to see shortages in the grocery stores. I remember walking into a, a store that I used to shop on on uh, Park Avenue in Montreal in the Mile End District. And uh, I walk into the store and there's just, it, it's not like it was bare shelves. It's not like it was, you know, full-blown breadline style communism. But there was a lot of things missing and it it just it just caught my attention. And at that moment, I kind of had an aha moment. And that you know, look at this city. It's it's gridlocked. Uh, you you can't trucks can't come in and out. And uh, it, the food system is so fragile. If there's any disruptions in the supply chain, not to mention it being fragile for many other reasons as well. But I kind of woke up to that then, and that that's when I I was interested in sustainable agriculture and things like this before. But that at that very moment, that's when I realized that I had to get out of the city, and I had to start taking steps towards being able to take care of myself if times got tough. And that was, you know, 12 or so years ago. So I'm curious, for those of us who are in the city, is there some solution to what, what we can do? Or do we have to all move out <laughs> to farms? Yeah, you have to move out. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, there's solutions. Sure, there's solutions. There's solutions for, there's all kinds of solutions. I would say, and I can talk about some of those, but I would say... Um, if you're awake to what's going on and you have the ability and the option to get out of the big cities, you should absolutely be out of the big cities. Smaller towns are going to be more 
and, and this is me making predictions, right? I don't necessarily, I can't guarantee that all these things are going to happen, but look where we are right now. Look what's happened over the last year. Um, there's been reportages of, reports of food shortages all over the world for the last year. I mean, at the beginning of last year, or in April last year, all these reports of farmers dumping product, millions of gallons of milk, dumping, killing animals that couldn't go to uh, the processing facilities. So there are, yeah, there's solutions. Circling back to where we're going, there, there are solutions. But first and foremost, it's just going to be better off being outside of the city, in my opinion. If you look at the level of coercion from governments, it always is harder felt in cities. And generally, the bigger the city, the more liberal the city, the more progressive slash regressive the policies are, and the heavier-handed the government is. Just look at where all these lockdowns are happening around uh, Canada, the United States. They're all in these very liberal cities. And uh, the bigger they are, the more liberal they are, and the more violent they will be. And, and, and potentially, the more disastrous they can be in a crisis situation. And so first and foremost, if you can get out of the city, you should get out of the city. But not everybody can. And so if you can't, you know, you should have a real solid backup plan. You should have a way to get out of the city. Because if you want to get out of the city when everybody else is getting out of the city, you're not getting out of the city. When everybody tries to get on the interstate at once, nobody's getting on the interstate. It's going to be gridlocked. So you need to have... You know, a dirt bike, a motorbike, uh, an electric assist bike that can go off road. You know, it's, mm. um, you know, there, you should have a bug out bag. You know, you should have a backpack, uh, like a full size um, hiking backpack that's loaded with survival supplies that when the time comes to absolutely get out and you can't, you can't be here any longer, you can grab that bag and go and survive for seven days. That's basic survival stuff. I'm not a survival expert by any uh, by any means. I'm a farmer. Um, that's that's my skill is on the land. But um, I've been thinking about and preparing for this event that we're in right now for over ten years, and it's uh, it's incredible to watch it transpire. And every day in the news cycle, just more and more stuff that looks like is expected with what this uh, the this narrative is telling us. Well, this is sure a wake-up call. I mean, I have been preparing food, but I hadn't thought about getting a backpack or having a, a bike to get out of the city. And what you're saying makes so much sense. You know, I don't know how some seniors or some toddlers would do that, but certainly well, the majority of people could do that. Hmm? Yeah. Hopefully toddlers have their parents to 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 help them with that. And you know what? It, it it all it all comes down to your context and where you are too, right? Mm -hmm. Some some places are going to be far better off than others. Um, well, I'm near San Francisco, so picture it. <laughs> yeah, you want to get the hell out of that area. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like, oh, you know, there is a oh, park yeah. actually that's about ten minutes, fifteen minute walk. It's a big park. I mean, I suppose people could go camp in there, but. The food supply, you know, gridlock everywhere. I can see it happening. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, it already is happening in some ways. I mean, just just looking um, in Canada here, the, the news, the things that are going on in the big cities here, particularly Toronto and Winnipeg and Montreal, is absolute martial law. 
curfews. Wow. Can't you can't go out past eight o'clock? It's like uh, what what happened in Australia. You know, in Victoria, Australia, in Melbourne, that was sort of the canary in the coal mine for when this thing really started to roll out. And then that's when I think a lot of people started to wake up that this is a global initiated plan. This isn't just countries trying to keep their people safe from a virus that has a ninety nine point nine eight percent survival mm-hmm. rate. This is an absolute lock-in-step global initiative to bring in a new level of uh, tyranny, which is a technocracy, onto the face of this earth. And it looks like the powers that be will stop at nothing to get what they want. And, yeah. So you're saying that what was happening in Victoria is now happening in Canada as well? Absolutely. Toronto, the city of Toronto, is an absolute police military police state right now there there <gasps> there are there are police on horseback rounding people up at protests almost every single day uh, i have a personal friend in toronto named adam skelly who is a, a barbecue restaurateur had three restaurants very successful young entrepreneur um 75 police officers in a phalanx surrounded his restaurant with horseback and batons and multiple dozens of vehicles to stop a guy flipping barbecue. Meanwhile, two blocks down the street, the the restaurant at Costco is flipping burgers and rolling hot dogs and there's customers lined up to eat there. But 75 police officers descended on a 34-year-old entrepreneur barbecue restaurant to shake him down. Wow. It's wow. unbelievable what's going on here. No attention. That is no. Well, they you know, tremendous. It, it, well, that's because this is this this whole thing is all about shutting down the middle class, shutting down small business. This is a a complete disruption of the, the economy. This is a planned demolition of the Western world. That, in my opinion, that's what this is. This all relates to Agenda 21, Agenda 2030, uh, even the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. All of these things have been talked about for a long time. They've been planned. Um, they've they, There have been many documents that have been published that outline all of these things. Mm-hmm. And, well, actually, uh, on our show, we've covered a lot of this, and we have mentioned those documents so everything you're saying is right in keeping with what we've tried to been to inform our audience with. It's just that, you know, Canada is so close now to where I am. You know, Victoria, Australia, it was kind of like, well, it's, you know, <laughs> it's across the ocean. But now you're talking like just up, just a little north of me. And it, here it comes. And our, And I'm curious, are you seeing Chinese involvement? Hundred percent. I mean that Chinese involvement is actually in the uh, so this thing you know people are hearing about these soldiers in 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 Canada and stuff, right? That's probably what you're referring to, right? Mm-hmm. So there are I I can't tell you for myself that I've seen that, though I've heard a number of firsthand reports. I have friends that live up in northern BC and they've seen these places, and there's a number of independent media. Uh, journalists that have gone up there and checked it out too. 
And it seems kind of benign. It's not like there's, you know, CCP soldiers doing, you know, you know, communist marches and any sort of wave, any sort of uh, show of aggression. It's not like that at all. It looks like it's sort of this benign, maybe military college or something for Chinese people. Um, However, there is a document that was a um, it's called the Foreign Investment Protection Act of 2014. It was an uh, um, an international treaty that was between Canada and China. You can you can Google that. Uh, they've renamed it since then. But if you search Foreign Investment Protection Act, you will find it. There's an article in that document, Article 33, actually something about that number. I don't know, but uh, Article 33 basically lays out a path for China to develop have carte blanche to develop mining projects in Canada basically waives them of all legal liability for environmental damage um it gives them it it gives them protection from the media uh explicitly says that that uh that China has it has to be there's sort of a hush order on reporting anything that China is doing for development of uh natural resource projects and in that article, it also explicitly states that China has the legal authority to deploy military soldiers on Canadian soil, including <sighs> nuclear weapons. Including nuclear weapons? So, so this, this whole thing has been happening for a long time. None of what we're seeing right now is new. This well, has been going for a long time. Uh, this is some kind it, 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 i think i don't think china is really the ones pulling the strings here i think it's our our typical usual our our usual sp- suspects right our our, mm-hmm. our bankers our central mm-hmm. banking authority the, the the cronies who run the world right. the old banking the families who run the world right yeah the banksters that's the world we live in they run the show all this politics this dog and pony show this is all just theater so that they take the fall and it keeps the heat off them. It's the same geezers running this thing. Mm-hmm. And um, China is the front man of it, at least here in Canada, so it seems. Uh, and they seem to be the front man of the UN, you know, especially when you look at the WHO and organizations like this. Um, of course, our friends at the Rockefeller Foundation, too, as well, right? Mm-hmm. Lock in step with uh, the WHO and China. And so... I think we're just we're just seeing this rollout now. I don't know how this is all going to go um, because there's a lot of other things at play. You know, even I mentioned it earlier, but the UN, the UN drip is the uh, UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. It sounds really nice, um, but it isn't. But it's not. It's like Agenda 21 and Agenda 2030. It's right. it's laced with virtue signaling and good intentions and hopes and dreams, but when you actually dig into the words and you read, I am a bit of a student of legalese, so I've spent a lot of time researching the law, not formally trained, but but I can read documents and, and make sense of them, and uh, it's, it's, a, it's a takeover. It's an absolute takeover. It's like, I'm sure some of you uh, have seen it, you probably discussed it on your show at some point, but that really popular world economic forum video uh, that went viral a while ago that says you'll own nothing and you'll be happy oh See that right one? that one mm-hmm. Th- this this is the this is them telling you exactly the new world order that they want yeah you'll own nothing and be happy and you'll rent everything the question that most people aren't asking well if i'm renting it who am i renting it from 
Right. You're renting right. it from these people. They want you to own nothing. They want you to eat less meat. They want you to lock down in your apartment while they have the world to explore and have their mansions and their huge ranches and, and live the life of abundance. They want us to live like caged animals. And uh, this is, this is it folks. Um, I think we can turn it around. I think I'm optimistic that actually things will change because I think when we look historically at how these things have gone is every time the powers that be get so greedy and so, and so uh, blinded and, and uh, they get sloppy with their own lust for power and they're just arrogance that they often collapse shortly after. So I think we're on the cusp of that. I, I think, think we are too. I think we are yeah, too. I'd like to bring Annette in here. Yeah. Annette? Yes. Hi. Hi, Curtis. Um, actually, hi. it's interesting because I was going to ask you um, specifically about the snake eating its tail. And so I'm brought in right at the mm. perfect time, I think. So, um, yeah, I'd like to just continue that thought for, for a moment about how you see that, you know, working itself out here. Well, I think there's a lot of signs for it right now. I mean, the the we we've seen the sort of unsustainability of global finance, the the inevitable collapse of central banking, and we we've seen it throughout history. Central banks always collapse. Every single currency, every single fiat currency that's ever been existed, eventually goes to zero. Because the system is unsustainable, and I think we're we're seeing in so many different ways the sort of cracks in the dam with this. And and there's so many financial gurus that talk have been talking about this forever. Think of guys like Gerald Salente, or uh, you know even guys like Peter Schiff, who I don't really agree with on a lot of things, but but you know he called it out in 2008. You know a, a lot of these signs were already around, but. I think deeper than that, I think what we're actually in is 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 in a spiritual and cultural crisis, a, a spiritual awakening paired with a cultural crisis. In that, there's so much that there's so much bit propaganda that's been fed into our culture for the last sixty years. You know, think of think of when going back to the um, uh, McCarthyism, you know, with the, the fear of communism. Yeah, that got out of hand, but that was actually a legitimate threat. Communist, there ha, the United States and the Western world has been, has been, um, uh, what's the word? Um, occupied. Yeah, uh, yeah, under attack. We've been under attack. We've had this sort of subversive intellectual or ideological warfare that we've been under for 60 years. I mean, even societies like the John Birch Society were talking about this in the 1960s. This is what where we're at right now has been a long takeover of the Western idea, you know, the idea of the Constitution, the idea of the Republic, the idea of freedom and liberty. Those ideas have been under attack for a long time. And then in that during that time, they've eroded all of these legal, lawful, constitutional civil rights constantly. And and I and I and I've spent hundreds of hours researching how this has played out in Canada. A little bit less familiar in the United States, but it's more one and the same thing. It's just this: these bankers 
that have these lawyers and these endless budgets to constantly change politics for their own favor. Rules for thee and not for me. And I think that people know that. I mean, this conversation we're having right now, this is, I I wouldn't be surprised if this was happening on at least 50% of the dinner tables in every home in America right now. Well, I would yes, hope a lot so, of people are awake. I would hope so too. I mean, I not everybody's so. I awake. I don't. I'm not as. I'm not as optimistic on that. But, <laughs> but maybe uh, not fifty percent. Call it twenty percent. Yeah, yeah. That, that's probably it. Like, you know, I, I wanted to. I mean, there's so many things I'd like to talk about because you keep saying things, and I want to go off in that direction. And um, but one of the things that I'd like to talk about is that whole idea of the government uh, rolling out this plan, and that the government truly is has a monopoly on brute force. And yes. you know, we you know, the, the rules for thee and not for me kind of idea uh, go into a little bit of that and the the complacency and complicity of people. How that's feeding into that, maybe. Yeah. Well, I mean, government is is coercion, right? I mean, if if the state can do one thing. Uh, that you can't do. It's a monopoly on the use of force. That's sort of a you know principled idea that a lot of the early uh, Austrian uh, economists like uh, Friedman and Hayek and Rothbard that they pointed out that the state was just this coercive agency. And um, I think when times were good in American culture, people were able to kind of look that you know kind of they didn't pay as much attention to it because overall their life was good. You know, okay, yeah, you know, you hear a story about uh, a raw milk, a a farm that sells raw milk getting literally raided with M16 assault rifles uh, and and police like they're shaking down a cocaine cartel. You know, you probably all heard about this. This is the war Mm. on food, you know, the war on the small farm. Um, But, you know, I think when it's not in your backyard, I think for, for a long time, people just didn't yeah okay probably a lot of republicans or or libertarians in the united states yeah would recognize that the state is coercion but when it's not at my doorstep uh you know i'll take the good with the bad because mostly things are good but now when we're seeing tyranny every day and even the united states just look around what's going on in, in your country i mean there's examples of the things that are happening in toronto happening in the u.s there's all kinds of stuff like this. I mean, and it isn't even just this year. Uh, I, when I was last in Arizona two years ago, there was a family that the uh, the that somebody reported something about a, a family's daughter. They had they had four kids and reported something about their daughter, and they the cops literally broke into their house because she looked a little malnourished, and they took her children from her and vaccinated her in the hospital, like. Insane stories like that, where things have been happening for a long time, these little bits of tyranny that we see pop up here and there. But now here it is, like it's full on. I mean, look at look at California's lockdown, look at New York State's lockdown. And, cool. and the United States is, is, is interesting because it's very different from state to state. You know, look at a place like uh, South Dakota, I believe it was, that had nothing, yeah. you know. Right, right. Look at the difference and, and, between know- Cuomo and... And it's really interesting because on the news, the, the mainstream media, the fake stream, you know, they don't, they won't even talk about South Dakota because guess what? Their numbers weren't any different. You know, I mean, exactly. All, their false numbers weren't any different than the other false numbers. I mean, <laughs> so, 
So, yeah, it's a problem. Um, they don't, as far as they're concerned, you know, it, it blows through their, it blows through thing. I have this theory and we're almost to break. So I just, you know, try to get this in here. But I have this theory that as you get closer to the target and as you're hovering over it, the attacks get greater and greater. So as people are trying to step up against this, it's gotten more brutal. I mean, I watched a video this afternoon that was really deeply disturbing and it was in Edmonton. Uh, about yes. protests in Edmonton and yeah, yeah. and uh, I think it's you know yeah because those people are over the target you know it's it's uh, like why absolutely. why are the churches not allowed to have this but we're allowed to have all this other thing it's just like the comparison of you know Costco compared to the barbecue guy absolutely that and, and, that, and that's well and that's part of the plan and, and maybe after the break we can talk about that but in that Rockefeller document called Scenarios for the Future of Technology and International Development that is clearly outlined in a chapter titled Lockstep that they wanted this to happen they want there to be a civil uprising they want civil instability they want civil war they want an absolute meltdown this is part of their plan mm-hmm. well that would be that would totally make sense since they're funding you know uh, Antifa and Black Lives Matter and stuff like that. Absolutely. It, you know, great. And they're supplying the bricks, you know, and, and pallets of bricks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we saw those stories, you know, all over last year, how ridiculous it was. Yeah. Um, absolutely. I mean, in this, if, if people go and find, you can find that Rockefeller document. There's a chapter called Lockstep. It's, the subtext is a world of tighter top-down government control and more authoritarian leadership with limited innovation and growing citizen pushback. That's the subtitle of, oh of the gosh. chapter, you know, <laughs> that they're going to they're going to hammer us with all these regulations and they're going to make us go nuts because that's going to help them accelerate the push. All right. So we'll see you back on the other side of the break. the big word law it stands for land air water when you are born and you come into this world you're born on the land not the water that's what the bar operates in that's their jurisdiction the jurisdiction of the sea okay law stands for land common law a stands for air acoustical law canon law and w stands for water which is admiralty maritime law that's what lawyers are trained in which is contract law it's the difference between legal and lawful is legal applies to that which is incorporated right? Legal persons, which are fictions that are created when we're born. That's what the birth certificate represents people. Okay. It's very disturbing when you understand that truth. For the other side of the news, my name's Christopher James, and I just wanted to give my full support to these wonderful people who are bringing incredible light forward at this time and moment in our world. The truth has never been more important, and I was incredibly blessed to be with them and share with them enormous truths on our very first interview, and I'm looking forward to coming back and seeing our world finally coming together under one hood, under one understanding that there's truly only one of us, and that there's only love that matters in this world, and this one truth is going to save our world, and I'm so blessed to be able to bring this forward and share this light with my fellow man and woman from this show this evening. So support them all you can moving forward. They're an incredible bunch of people, and Godspeed. Welcome back 
to the other side of the news. Tonight, our show is Harvesting Sovereignty, and our guest is Curtis Stone. And I am co-hosting with Akinthea, Timothy Saunders, and myself, Anetta. And we left off before the break. We were talking about the, the government and the, the brute force. And I just wanted to, um, we, we left off with the Edmonton um, issue. And I just kind of wanted to give you a chance, uh, Curtis, to, to finish up on that thought. Um, I think I was, well, I think I was talking about the, uh, the lockstep thing. Yes. And the uh, referring to the, the Rockefeller Foundation document that I believe was published in 2010 and how this whole thing of pushing back is, is what they actually want. It's actually, they actually wrote about it. And um, I think it's important that we keep a level head. Um, if they want us to push back, why do they want us to push back? Maybe we shouldn't push back. Maybe we should do something else. And what I'm more interested in right now is looking at the system like a train that's about to run off a cliff. Just get off the train. Mm. Why, why, why stay on it? Why, why, why argue with people on the train whether the train's going to go off the cliff when it's going to go off the cliff? Just get off the train. And well, I think... Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I think that that's, that's really a valid point that we have, you know... I've gotten to the point where I've been I've been banging on this drum since uh, you know publicly since last March uh, about what's going on and way before that on a private level, and you know the the thing is is like getting on this I think the same wavelength or the spiritually what's going on because it's gotten to the point that I am no longer wanting to put my energy over with these people that want to stay on the train. They want to get the vaccine. They want to do this. They want to do that. It's like, look, you've had 11 months of information uh, pushed at you. You, if, if you want to remain ignorant or naive or whatever you want, then okay. But now I think it's like, yeah, those of us that are um, seeing it for what it is, I think it's time to kind of gather forces and work together on this and jump off the train and get on something else here. I mean, that's just my yeah. feeling. Uh, well, it's in my opinion, it's the only way through this because I I I want I, I try to be I'm optimistic about a lot of things, but I'm also trying to be realistic and to go up against the state, to go up against the force. Look at look at the amount of force. Look at that example you mentioned in Edmonton. Look what just is happening in Toronto right now and regularly in Toronto. Um, it's. In this juncture, I'm going to switch gears a bit, but it connects into what we're talking about. At this juncture, I do I do believe we're in a spiritual revolution. I believe that because it's becoming so obvious, this matrix, you know, and you, you played that introduct that uh, sample from Christopher James. I know Christopher, and I, I know about the birth certificates and all this. And in a way, it's part of this matrix, though there's there's more to the story. But people are waking up to that. And the system knows that, and they don't want you to wake up, because waking up actually involves resonating at a higher frequency, which is love, and or the expression of love, at least, and, and the connection to God and the Creator. It's not to fight with your neighbors about getting a vaccine, or fighting with people in the store about wearing a mask. Forget all that. We need to focus our energy on positive and creation. 
And that's to create the world that we want to see. We've been letting bankers tell us what we should create for them for thousands of years. And we have been creating their world for them. We need to start realizing how powerful we are as creators and that we can create any world we want. We just have to do it. And it means getting off our lazy butts and stop watching television and stop listening to what these geezers tell us on the news and start creating the, the world that we want. And there's, there's many ways, there's many, th- there's many things people can do. There's many ways to get involved. But it involves it means getting involved and doing the hard work, putting the work gloves on, getting your hands dirty, getting in the dirt, making things happen. I'm not saying we all go back to being farmers, not at all. But we need to work together to create a, an alternative society. I believe the solution is in private societies, is in forming our own communities and this taking care perfect, of, our, of ourselves. This is the perfect segue for, for me to come in, if I may. Curtis, hmm. uh, this is Timothy speaking. I have been listening very uh, contently in, in the, the backgrounds because you guys have been having a perfect conversation and you know, the subjects and the milestones you've gone through and the, the reasoning, the logic, I support totally. I, I don't like it, but <clears throat> excuse me, it, it is what it is. This is where we are. And I think the train analogy is also uh, a very good sort of visual tool that a lot of people can relate to. And yeah, I, I'm not a, a defeatist. I'm, I'm somebody who does not give up. So in one way, I do not want to sort of disembark the train. I'd rather try and get to the front and, you know, uh, somehow switch the controls off and stop the train. But, you know, <laughs> the other, on the other hand, we all can't be Superman. And uh, that's another thing which we need to sort of do a reality check on and say, well, if it's not going to be possible, then again, how are we going to sort of, uh, you know, how how is the majority going to overcome and uh, I'd say win? Win is a big word, but you know, survive, survive this mm-hmm. this, this event. Mm-hmm. So, one of the things that I I would imagine I I'm, I'd like to take a little sidestep at this point, and that is that you know we're having this conversation. We've had similar conversations. Uh, for, for months, for years, uh, this has been something in in my awareness for for I would like to say for for a long time, uh, but it, it's not about you know how long I remember talking about these things. The the point is, it's none of this is a surprise where we are today, and the the point is how how can we best turn our skill set into something which is useful and which is more than the individual cogs turning to create this, you know, this next phase. I mean, I, I totally agree that we are going through a spiritual awakening, but that's one facet of, of what we're all doing. We also have this disembarkation from the system, the system, the matrix, whatever you want to call it. And I think that's to take off the mask to, to not conform uh you know as, as i say with respect to others if, if at all possible uh because i believe that it's not a time to be you know a, aggression uh, physical force mm-hmm. not not things that i would i would think is, is the right direction at all it seems to be what the, the the police and the military find themselves uh doing at the moment as you say i mean 75 
guys overpowering one guy flipping burgers. It, it doesn't really seem to add up. So no. what, what I'm, I'm really, to, to form my question, you know, you are somebody who has actually gone out there, thought about this and done and done it. You, you are, you've, you've created a path and a way to exist in this world, in both worlds, actually, the new world and, and the old world. Uh, you are fulfilling, I guess, a dream, but also you are doing something which is very practical in your, uh, your I, I don't want to say micro farming because I see it growing mm. every day. But <laughs> So how, how would you um, gain the interest and support confidence into other people to, to follow suit and, and to empower yourself or to empower others in a similar way that you have? Well... I mean, there's a number of ways to motivate people to take action in that way. I generally, um, for the 10 years that I've been doing this, um, fear has never been part of that. I don't want to motivate people by fear. I want to motivate people by demonstrating to them the quality of life that comes from doing things such as being on the land. And and being on the land kind of... Um, you can express yourself on the land in many different ways, but there's something so magical about actually being connected to the land and and uh, growing your own food, planting things, working the land, improving the land, being a steward of the land, raising animals on the land, raising your children on the land. There's many ways to do that, but it's that connection to the soil and to the earth uh, fundamentally is is a thing that a lot of people in today's age are missing. And there's something to it. There's something, there's something to it uh, to be grounded, to actually touch the earth with your bare feet or your hands. There's something to it. And there's actually studies that prove that. Um, and, and so, I mean, as far, as far as motivating people to do it, well, <laughs> look around. I mean, um, again, I don't mean to motivate people by fear. I think with where we are now, though, I try to motivate them by some realism of the way things are and the way they are going. And um, besides from all the things that I mentioned, all the beautiful things that come from being connected to the land and understanding one's um, cycle in that land, how, we, how, we, how the land provides for us, but how we also return to the land and how we, you know, even, even in the idea of gardening, you know, creating your own compost out of things that were grown on the land, it's as simple as that is. But that's part of that cycle. Mm. Um, but I mean, on, on the, the flip side of the realization of where we are now, it's, well, look, if we don't really start looking at where your food comes from, you might not have it. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I think that motivation is, is one part of it. But I think another thing is to instill confidence in others so that they can actually use their hands and actually you know, become farmers or, 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 you know, even grow a tomato. I mean, most people have been buying them out of packets for as long as they can remember to actually plant mm -hmm. a seed, you know, let nurture the plant and uh, care for the plant and then take the, the produce and in, in, in the first taste of the first tomato you've grown yourself, for example, mm -hmm. that must be an aha moment for people. But to Absolutely. actually get them to do that is... I would have thought uh, an uphill struggle because people don't have confidence. Well, they don't. People. No, and and I agree with that. And and to be honest, I, I 
in some ways with the way this whole thing is going, um, I've become a bit of a brutalist in the sense that um, I frankly don't care <laughs> if, if other people don't want to do it. I know I like, I don't care. I'm not worried about the masses. I'm not worried about the majority. I don't, I think the masses of people will um, get woke with their pants down. They will, they won't wake up to the world, the reality of the world they're living in until literally the boot of the state is on their neck. Um, and so That's that all, means all the that, shelves are empty. Like you say, not like yeah, the, one or the other. Ago. I mean, pick your poison. There, there's, there's a, there's a whole bunch of different ways this whole scenario could roll out and we might see them all rolling over the number of years that this thing is. I think this is all leading towards 2030 and this is going to last nine more years. And it's gonna it's gonna take different roads. There's gonna be other things besides the pan a pandemic. There's going to be a cyber pandemic. You know these mm-hmm. the same geezers. World Economic Forum are already wargaming that thing out. There's gonna be food shortages. There's going to be civil war. There's going to be a garden variety of terrible things that 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 go that that we can go. But we don't all have to be part of that. Exactly. And we can we can step off the train because like as you said you know you 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 have this idea of getting to the train and taking control of the controls but the people at the control house have been there a lot longer than you have and there's institutions there and there's things that you can't even understand and so to assume that we can go and change this thing is i think it's not only crazy um, highly illogical, but just why bother? Why, well, why do we that, save it? <laughs> but also to play out the analogy even further, I mean, even if we do get to the, you know, the controls and do manage to switch it off, then the train is still traveling on rails that somebody else has laid. So exactly. who laid the who laid the rail system? Exactly. So yeah, I, I it is a very good analogy. Um, Let's, let's move slightly sideways because there are some other questions I'd like to ask, if I may. The, the climate change aspect of what we're living through, if indeed there is a climate change. I mean, there are definitely changes in climate, but I, I'm not a fan of Greta Thunberg um, no. and the people that sponsor her. Yeah. Uh, but what do you notice as, as somebody who obviously has been far more attentive about the land and about the seasons? What what have you noticed from, you know, what are your boots on the ground opinion about climate at the moment? Well, it's interesting you mention it. I was, uh, I have been giving this a lot of thought lately. I actually talked about it in my live stream a bit today. And what we saw in Texas um, was an example of some kind of climate change, right? It's a climate changing. Whether it was triggered by HARP and weather modification uh, technology that the CFR, Council on Foreign Relations, people have been talking about forever, or it's a legitimate type of climate change. I'm more along the grand solar minimum theory of these things. I recognize that it is still kind of a theory, but I see a lot of evidence for it. And I see the world getting colder, not hotter. And as a farmer who's spent the last, I mean, I've been doing all of this for 12 years now. And for those 12 years, I've spent an incredible amount of time outside. Even before that, I worked as a a tree planter in the the Canadian forests. 
uh, for nine years. And so I've really spent 20 years, over 20 years uh, of my life working outside. And I have not seen the weather get warmer. Uh, I'm seeing it get it getting colder. I'm sure there's cycles, right? It's been colder mm. before. When I was really sure. young, it was really cold. But what we saw, you know what? It doesn't really matter so much about what I believe about any particular climate change, whether it's global warming or global cooling. The fact of the matter is our our our, our systems are very fragile because they're very centralized. And what we witnessed in Texas was a perfect example of how central planning and just short-term thinking failed them. Um, because it's not historically it, – it, Texas has seen cold weather like that before. About 100 years ago, it has happened. Um, I, I, I heard from uh, somebody who was in their 90s who, who recalled an, an event like that when they were younger – Obviously, doesn't happen very often, but nature moves in cycles, and sometimes these cycles last hundreds of years, and that's kind of the idea behind the Grand Solar Minimum is these these four hundred year cycles. But when we're so centralized and we give authority and to other people that we assume are just going to take care of it for us, that's where we get stung. And I think the the big takeaway that we can learn from an event like what happened in Texas is that. Everybody needs to take responsibility for how mm -hmm. they live. Definitely. Now, I, I was just reflecting while you were saying that. I mean, I think we've also allowed because, you know, we wake up with our power every morning. We, we, you know, a lot of us are hypnotized to give it away. But I think we've allowed a lot of people to come into the control, the authorities and the governments and so on, uh, who actually have very little practical or real life knowledge about anything. Absolutely. And they are the people who are pulling the strings. Obviously, they're not pulling the strings of everything because there's some great big hands up their asses because they're just puppets Absolutely. anyway. But the point is that, you know, if we believe the matrix system, then these guys supposedly are running the countries. Uh, but they, they have no clue. They have no connection with the ground, the earth, the air, the elements, the seasons, the large cycles, you know, precession, solar minimums and so on. They have no clue. And yet mm -hmm. they're broadcast on television and people believe it. And there you go. And that's why we're where we are. Yeah, um, absolutely. But, but I, I think that there is absolutely something to the solar minimum. And I believe it's a 20-year cycle we're just entering. I don't know exactly how that's going to play out um, because I wasn't around 400 years ago. But, exactly. the, but I do remember, and I just wanted to ask you this before I pass, um, pass the mic to, to Kintia. Uh, but I do want to ask you one thing. When you were younger, do you remember the color of the sun? Do you remember it being the same? I know it's different everywhere in the world because of the atmosphere and the angles through the atmosphere. But do you remember it being the same color or do you remember it being something different perhaps? Um, it's a loaded question. Hmm. I honestly have never thought about that. But when you when you ask that question, I understand the thrust of where you know, we're talking about the atmosphere mm. being different or the sun being different. Um, I can't say that I remember, to be honest. I can't say. I do know that I have witnessed, uh, I've been watching the sky for a long time. I do know that uh, when I first started farming 10 years ago, I saw massive amounts of chemtrails being sprayed in the sky. 
but I haven't seen them for the last number of years. So I've noticed that. I, I can't say that I remember the uh, the sun, though, to be honest. Well, I, I just throw in my, my footnote. I remember, you know, going back some, some decades when I was a kid, uh, the, the color of the sun was warmer, was um, more yellow, more golden, mm-hmm. that, that type of color. I know it's a lot it's to do with the position on the globe. It's a lot to do with the atmosphere and so on. In the last, I would say, certainly 10 years, I would say that it looks more flat. The color looks less saturated. Uh, it looks more pale, I would say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you think yeah. if, when you were a kid, as a kid, you used to pull out the crayons and you get the orange or the yellow color crayon and, and you draw the sun as this little disc with like, you know, uh, lines emanating out from the center. But yeah, it's not like that anymore. Interesting observation. Just a thought. Yeah, absolutely. Kintia, do you have any any thoughts you'd like to come in with? Oh, yes, I do. So, you know, when you're talking about the solar minimum, um, I also uh, have been aware that all the planets in our solar system are going through something. It's not just the Earth. So Mm -hmm. there's more evidence to support that we're going into a a mini ice age and it's a cycle that has occurred many times on this planet and geologists will tell you that's the case. Mm -hmm. So we need to be prepared for that for sure. And the other thing that really touched me when you were talking about the relationship with the earth and how there's a connection and something we feel the ancients, you know, the indigenous people all around the planet they speak of this relationship with the earth. It's a vibrant living relationship. And modern society has come to regard the earth as just dirt and not having a consciousness. And I think a relationship requires the relationship of two, you know, at least two consciousness, that the planet itself has a consciousness and that we, in fact, are the living earth. We are made of earth. We are the living earth. That's we right. are the breathing earth. And yeah. it's so important to get out there and, like you said, put your feet in the dirt. Put it in the grass. Lie on the ground. Let the vibrations of the earth echo through your body and and animate all the cells in the body. It's It's so important. And I... I just weep for children who are locked in cities and they think that masonite is wood, you know. They're yeah, used to see tables out of masonite and they they don't even know what real wood is. Yeah. Yeah. It's another and, reason for us to just get out of it. Mhm. The, city, well, the cities are cities are, are factory farms. They're just we right. weren't meant to well, live this if, way. You know, ideally, that's the beautiful thing. And and there are a lot of people who are not in that position to do that. I remember uh, hearing about this one vet who came back from Vietnam. And he had seen a lot of atrocities and, and some food problems. And he was motivated to create these, what they were like, four feet by four feet little beds where you could mm-hmm. grow your own vegetables so that you could do that wherever you were. And I and I have some friends who are taking bags of, of earth and they're not even putting it in a pot. They're just taking the bag and they just cut a slit in the bag and they're putting, you know, seeds into those bags to grow things. 
And I'm wondering, like, what would you recommend for people who can't get out and get a farm? Well, you know, as somebody who wrote a book on urban agriculture, I have been a huge advocate for urban agriculture for a very long time. Um, and there's something, there's something powerful about doing that, that, you know, one of the things that one of the most powerful aspects of urban farming is not so much the food production, because let's be honest, very small scale food production like that isn't really going to move the needle as far as your daily calorie intake. Mm -hmm. One of the most exciting aspects of urban agriculture is the connections that happen in the community level. The partaking and sharing of growing food is a transcendent experience, and it's a great way to connect with others. You're an inspiration, I have to say. I'm trying to figure out, okay, what can I do here? Actually, (laughs) I could do something here. And welcome back to the other side of the news. Our guest tonight is Curtis Stone. And the show is called Harvesting Sovereignty. Our co-hosts are Timothy Saunders, Annette Driscoll, and myself, Kinthea. So, Curtis, you were just about to tell us about your book. Can you uh, share a little light yeah, well, on that? We were ta- yeah, we were t- talking about, um, you know, you, you, you had a question about, you know, growing in the city and all that. And... Uh, and uh, as somebody who wrote a book about urban farming, my book, The Urban Farmer, um, you know, I've been a huge advocate for urban farming for a long time. And and one of the things that one of the magical things that happens with with growing food in cities is that it's not really so much about the production. Certainly in my book, I, I, I really delve into how commercial production and urban farms work. But. The reality is it's it's a niche thing and it's not really going to feed the world per se, just just to be realistic about it. But one of the most powerful things that happens with urban farming is when people get together in the community who maybe live in these apartments 10 stories above the ground and don't talk to each other and they get out and they're, you know, in a, in a community garden type setting or something like that and they connect with people over something so simple. And it transcends language, it transcends culture, it transcends economics. Um, It's a really amazing way to bring people together. But the big but is where we are now with what's going on, I don't think you're going to produce a significant well it's not what i think it's i know as a as a guy who's been farming for 10 years you can't really grow that much food as far as sustenance and your sort of daily calorie intake by just growing in pots and things like that on your balcony so i think a solution for people to participate in their own food sovereignty without owning land or without even necessarily being uh, outside of a city is cooperating with others to get on land and farm that land. Um, I, I, I did this myself this year. I did it as an experiment when the lockdown started and they shut down the borders. I had a I had plans to travel through 25 U.S. states in 2020 to, to create videos for my membership site and my YouTube channel. And that didn't happen. And so I said, well, what else am I going to do? 
uh, it looks like the world's going to shit right now. It looks like there's some serious problems going on. I'm going to start farming again. I actually stopped commercially farming two years ago and pursued just my my publishing and my my public speaking and other things that I do. And um, but I said I'm going to start another farm. I'm going to do it. I'm going to put it all. I'm going to record all of it and share all of it. And I'm going to show people how to set up a cooperative farm. So I went and got myself a half acre. I leased it. I got five people to pitch in with me. We all put in $5,000, which was way more money than we needed. Uh, we only spent about fifteen, I think. But we set up a half acre, fully uh, functional, intensive vegetable mini farm that grows all the vegetables for five families year round. And we did it in the course of a few months. And then I documented that work throughout the year. Uh, on my channel and uh, my membership site from the field.tv. And I honestly think at this juncture with where we are, where we're actually at the precipice of a serious food crisis, it's, this is no longer just, you know, grow food in the city because it's a great thing to do. It's a great way to supplement, uh, offset the things you buy from the grocery store, grow some of your own stuff, you know, save some money. This isn't really about that anymore, though, you know, th there's part of that. But this is really about... If you don't start seriously growing your own food, you might not have any. And so I think a more practical way to do it is get together with 5, 10, even 20 people and go and lease a piece of land somewhere a little bit outside of the city. Maybe you got to commute to it a half an hour. But it's something. And it's more significant than just growing herbs and greens on your balcony because that's not really going to provide calories, especially over winter. And the winter is really what people need to focus on because when, when it's summertime, we, things grow fast and there's lots available. There's more available. But, when time, but during the winter in North America, which is predominantly a cold climate, production slows and then food comes from other places. And so we have to be prepared for the reality that we might, might not get food from other places. You know, Florida and Southern California can only feed so much, and they've been having for, uh, shortages as well. So I think something like a food co-op or, or a farm co-op is, is something that's more practical um, and just more effective for, for real food security at this time. And so necessary. That's really great that you've been doing a video series to show people how to do it. And I'm just thinking about how people across the country can organize to do that. The other level that I see again is when I was talking about this relationship with the earth and then you bring in the relationship with the community. It, I think it's not just about actions that we're taking. It's about the state of being that we're holding when we're taking those actions. And right. there, there is this, like you mentioned, love. There is this quality of cooperation. I know when I lived in Greece for seven years, the family, I stayed there a long time because I enjoyed being part of a big family there that adopted me. And it was nourishing in a very strong way. And I can see that when when we join together that our consciousness has an impact. It's not just our physical actions. I mean, individually we have an impact, but together we have a much greater impact. And 
I like that you're putting some very practical underpinnings to the relationship of consciousness, group consciousness, relationship with the earth in a hmm, in a way that is doable and will provide a kind of sustenance beyond just the food itself because I see so many people now look at our young people there the suicide rate has gone up skyrocketing in our young people yep because of the isolation and the loneliness mm-hmm. so the idea of getting you know communities together that cooperation that family that tribe is so important and you know it's strange now you live in a city and you don't even know who's in the apartment next to you in the same hallway i mean this is weird i mean i go to visit friends and literally they don't know who lives next door to them how is that possible it's all by design (laughs) in my opinion design they Mm. the, the, the establishment the banking elite who run the world they look at us as rats lab rats farm Mm -hmm. animals and they've actually been running these psychological experiments for a long time they've been doing trials like this to see how people live in high density and um there was actually a trial that was in it was a very old one i forget the name of it but it was done with rats and they had this huge area where all these rats lived in and they ran this trial for almost a year and they kept increasing the, the population kept increasing in there and, the, and it just kind of showed how they started to live with each other and how they started to this the social structure started to break down and it's a fascinating i wish i could remember the name of it right now but the, what, what what's happening right now is kind of expected um in so many different ways that's that's what's so interesting about this whole scamdemic thing when it happened because it was kind of like the isolation the um, hyper-distractedness of society, the um, lack of connection to one another, but hyper-connection to online world and social mm-hmm. media and all that. All of these things were already kind of brewing. It was like when this when they started running the lockdowns, it, it kind of just brought out all these things that were already around us, but it just made mm-hmm. it very visceral especially the tyranny. And so yeah, it's 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 an interesting time and I I do see a light at the end of the tunnel. I don't I don't I don't think it's all a foregone conclusion. I don't I I have young children. I have a wife and two young kids. Like I I can't tell my kids uh or or have conversations about how screwed we are. I mean, my certain my wife and I talk about what's going on in the world and we talk about it with, around our kids. But for us, it's so solution orientated. It's like we are doing everything we can right now to set ourselves up. Our goal this year is to be completely out of debt and on the land, completely off grid and self-contained with this year. It's an ambitious goal and uh, we're going for it. And it's taken me a long time to be able to be in a position where I could do such a thing. Mostly it really pertains to having the skills to do it. That's taken the the most amount of time to, to build those skills. And I'm hoping that I can be um, an example for people. I'm documenting the whole thing. We're building a new home. We're putting in an off-grid power system. We're, I'm developing a new farm. 
um, it's a massive undertaking. And, uh, you know, we, we just try to stay solutions orientated. You know, a thing that a good friend of mine always says is uh, every day since this whole thing, whole thing started, basically from February, end of February last year, he says, I just try to make key decisions every single day, things that are going to move the needle towards being in that better position that I want to be in. I'm trying to make important decisions and, and doing things that are moving that goal forward. Just constantly moving that forward. Because maybe this will take a little, like, I, I think this is going to take a while. Like, it's not like it's going to be, the hammer's going to come down and all of a sudden we're living in a gulag. I don't think it's going to go that way because we have a long ways to go as far as the culture accepting a lot of the things that are going to come. Like, you look at the different levels of uh, government display of force in various places, they're accepted in different ways. Like here in British Columbia, where I am, it's very lax compared to the rest of Canada. Like we, we haven't had any serious lockdowns here, um, but we have a very low a population a, a population that's spread out over a great distance, but we have a very low engagement in politics. Like only 52% of people here vote. Uh-huh. Uh, read a statistic yesterday, only 34% of people in BC actually follow the guidelines, the health, uh, the health authority guidelines. So there's a lot of people here who don't really listen to the government. Right. And so I think when you, when you, and when you look at a place like uh, Southern Ontario, for example, completely different, completely different, way higher levels of people that participate in the political system, but also way higher levels of uh, complacency, uh, com- uh, complacement, or what's the word I'm trying to find? Uh, just going along with it, right? Complacency. Yeah, thank you. Um so it's different from place to place. And I think because of that, a place like the United States and Canada, which are both incredibly diverse countries with all kinds of different people living in all kinds of different places under all kinds of different circumstances, we're going to see things roll out differently at different places. And that's why I tell people, get out of the cities, because in the long haul, if it's a long game, um, things are going to accelerate faster in the bigger cities where they have been accelerating faster and they're going to change differently in the, in the rural areas. And so I think being more outside the cities is going to have a better chance of success going forward. Uh, That totally makes sense. Uh, One question that's like running in the back of my mind is being that you have such a relationship with the land and you, you spend time on the land do you find that it talks to you? And if so, what does it say? Um, not so much in the... Well, <laughs> it's an interesting question, actually. At, at first, my sort of knee-jerk reaction was to kind of laugh and kind of go, oh, that's kind of silly. But with what you said, actually, is kind of quite profound in that who knows who's talking to who? I mean, the thing that's so that I find so fascinating about when I'm on our country property, because right, right now, as I speak to you, I'm in Kelowna, but we have a a, a new property that's way outside of the city and deep in the country. And we don't even have visible neighbors. Like we're, we're in forests on a mountain. And when I'm out there, the way I experience day-to-day life, even the way, the way that thought energy moves through my mind is very different than, when I'm here in the city right now, I'm sitting at my desk with two computer screens and a microphone and a, and light artificial light in my greenhouse. And, um, but when I'm out there, yeah, the land does talk to me. I, I, 
I think and exist in a different way. I have a level of peace that that I don't get in the city. I mean, just on the physical standpoint, I mean, we have no electromagnetic radiation out there. We're in the middle of nowhere. I can't even mm -hmm. get a cell signal out there. In the city here, I'm barraged by frequencies coming from at me from all different directions and artificial light frequencies and 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 uh uh dirty uh like just light from the city you know like the, the sky never gets dark right. you know it's not a big city but it's a city and um yeah it's a totally different experience and so in that yeah the land does speak to me and the things the things that i learn and um uh that i think about or you know even with farming years of farming there's an old saying that's like you can't teach you can't teach farming um while you're what is it something like you can't teach farming while you're learning philosophy but you can learn philosophy while you're farming like, it's like <laughs> you can so be true. on the farm you can be on the farm working and doing something productive as well as having a very highly stimulating conversation with a friend mm -hmm. and we experienced that on our cooperative farm this year and you just get all of us out there working together and talking about what was going on and we can. We're. It's great because you're having conversations which you want to have with people that you want to be around, but you're also getting something productive done. Mm -hmm. You're getting a job it, done. And so you find. I, I. It sounds like you find your, all your faculties working better, more heightened sense of awareness. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. And and, and that just. Do you find that like the inspiration for solutions comes to you more quickly? Yes. And that, that, that also just comes from, you know, healthy body, healthy mind kind of thing too. Right. And, and having a good lifestyle and as, as well, I mean, uh, sitting at a computer day in and day out can be, uh, can be taxing, but when you're on the land, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's where, that's where we're meant to be. And I'm not, I'm not proposing that we go back to some kind of primitive agrarian society, but more of us, more people need to have a connection to the land. I mean, you look at the statistics of farmers right now, it's it's scary. I mean, it, some of, that was some of the, the data that really um, motivated me to become a farmer. But also I, I cited in my book, I cited some studies about how less than 2%, and this was when I wrote it. I wrote that book in 2015. But uh, back then, it's probably way less now. But at that point, only 2% of people in North America were engaged in agriculture. And even from less than that, it's a, a smaller percentage of that, probably only 5% of that 2% are people that are directly involved in the management or the the funding of the business, like they're directly involved in the starting of the farm. So, you know, 95% of people within that 2% of agriculture are employees, right? They're just people that show up to right. do the job, which we need those people. They're important. Um, but more importantly, you need the you need the guy or girl to start the farm itself so that they can have employees, right? And so the numbers of farmers have been diminishing for a a very very long time. Really, starting with the green revolution in agriculture, we have seen the number of farmers diminish every year. And there's so many problems that just come from that. You know, one one of them that that I identified early on in my career was that. If people aren't engaged in their food and they don't even know where their food comes from, you can't expect them to make good consumer decisions. Right. And so we have a food system, an agricultural system, that is unsustainable in every respect when it comes to conventional um, commodity-based large-scale agriculture, whether that's 
uh, raising animals and, and CAFOs, uh, caged animal feeding operations, or it's growing GMO, uh, Roundup Ready soy and corn. That's those those systems of growing are so hard on the farmer, as well as the land, on the water, and every of the environment uh, pieces of our earth that we need to sustain life on this planet. It's completely unsustainable everywhere. And I know I'm preaching to the choir, and this is probably not that that's nothing new for most people listening to this. Well, but, it's all wonderful, and you know we're we're coming close to the end of the show, and I really like to bring Timothy back in or Anetta. I have uh, one one question, if I may just jump in very quickly. I mean, what what you're just talking about now, Curtis, is, you know, this system is unsustainable. I mean, in this last year, as far as I understand, there are many new laws coming in or have come in uh, under emergency powers, which are basically stopping the import-export of seeds. Yes. Um, a lot more controls over livestock and uh, you know, literally a, a clamp down on people or legislation coming in to actually try and prevent people from growing their own food. Is is, is that That's insane? <laughs> so the system is trying to prevent people like yourself and other people from doing the most simple. I say simple. It's not simple. The most basic right, which is to grow your own produce. Yeah. Anything. Anything they can do. The, the central banking elite, anything they can do to disconnect us from who we actually are, which is the children of God connected to this earth and being uh, fully immersed in that cycle of, of the water cycle, the, the cycle of life to death in the soil, all these beautiful things that exist in nature. These are us. And I believe the controlling elite want us to always forget about who we are and they do it by adding layers and layers and layers of bs and complexity to our lives that disconnect us from who we are and i believe at this juncture in this spiritual awakening it's more important than ever to connect to who you actually are and it is powerful and it's transcendent and the more people you can do it with the better and i think that's where people really should be focused at this time that's why I tell people to get out of the cities because, like, I know it's it's hard. Everybody can't do that, uh, and they won't. But um, I, I hope that some of us will because life outside of there is is so much better and so much more sustainable. Well, and the thing is, yeah. the thing is, there is a way. I mean, if if some people do go out to the cities and they do start up a farm, they do start up a cooperative farm, then other people can commute. At least those that that whole group of like five families or 10 families, or whatever it is, can actually connect with that sort of uh, source of real reality, then it can work. Right. I mean, not that everybody yeah. has to physically move out of the city. That's so, right. It, it can. And I mean, I, I think, though, it's important for us to not always try to think about things as what can we do for everybody, because it becomes a mental trap. Th this whole idea of trying to save everyone is I've just seen so many people burn out on that because you can't save everyone. And, and right now, like everybody's going to wake up at different times. And that's just kind of, I believe that's part of the journey we're on when we come into these bodies and we exist in this world is that we just, we're all on our own different path. And we, if, if we get too hung up on trying to save everybody else, we, we we ignore the path in front of us and we don't see it 
clearly and we sometimes miss opportunities or miss moments and i think it's it's just important for us right now to focus on the people who are with us on this path and just move with them we don't need to have everybody else it's like because uh, i also think about that there was a, a popular video of meme thing that was was like kind of this cultural phenomenon a few years ago which showed this guy dancing at this like music festival and it's like somebody did a ted talk on how you start a movement and it really just start, starts with that one lone nut who's dancing and having a good time and then somebody I've else comes the up same and says, one. you know yes. i, I want to be there because that's cool that's what we need to do don't yeah. worry about trying to proselytize and convert people let's just there's enough of us are, that are awake now we need to just form our own societies, our own sort of tribes in a way, communities, and make those as awesome as they can be. And then people will go, hey, I want that life. And what can I do to get there? Instead of trying to tell people that they need to take off the mask or whatever and get in that adversarial position, because that's what the elite want. They want you to go and fight with people because when you're fighting and you're angry, your mind is in a lower frequency vibration. And I believe that removes you further from the creator and that gets you further away from the, the transcendent awakening that we can have if we all focus on creating something beautiful and positive. So, Curtis, this idea of raising our frequency is just so powerful and so needed. And I thank you for bringing that forefront Um I know that I myself have found myself wanting to go and save everybody. I, I confess, <laughs> I'm backing I've off from a there. lot of that. But uh, it can feel like you're just spinning your wheels and not going anywhere. You know, you're you're paddling as fast as you can and you still haven't moved. So I do think that change is going to come about more by consciousness than than the action and raising the frequency as you speak of. And I... And I can sense, just in hearing you, I hear the earth speaking through you. I mean, I can feel like your being has been nourished by this living, breathing earth. If that makes any sense to you. <laughs> mm -hmm. For sure. For sure it does. And um, I really wish more people could experience that because I think it's something that's been so long forgotten in our culture that people don't really know what they're missing. You know, it's, you know what it's actually kind of like, um, it's kind of like having kids. It's like, and I just put, I just, this thought just came into my mind because I just had this thought at this very moment is that how they connect is that before I had kids, you talk to other parents and they'd be like, Oh, you got to have kids. It's so great. And, you just, you go, oh, okay, yeah, cool. And I, I always wanted to have kids. And I was like, yeah, that's, 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 yeah, I definitely want to have kids. But you don't really know what they're talking about until you actually have children. Mm -hmm. I delivered both my children uh, in our home. We had natural birth and, and my, both my babies, the first contact I had with anybody else besides their mom was my bare hands. And it was a completely transcendent experience to, to witness the birth of your children, to participate in it. And then to be involved in their lives and see them grow and the joy and the love that you feel. It's, it, I'm not saying that gardening and what you feel on the land is the same thing. It's different. It's a love. It's a different kind of love. But it's, it's that kind of experience where you can't really understand it until you actually do it. 
And people can talk about it and tell you about it and you, they can romanticize it and you can watch cool documentaries about farming and get excited about it. But you don't really know what it's like to be on the land until you're actually on the land. And nobody can explain it. I mean, I, I can put out these words and it can get you inspired and make you want to do it, but you won't really have, won't really know what I'm talking about until you actually do it. And I really hope more people start finding ways that they can take that those steps because it isn't as hard as people think you know i wrote an entire book on how to farm on land you don't own we don't know need to own the land in a way the land owns us and we're all just kind of passing through we're just kind of passing through this world um people get so hung up on just well i have to build the ultimate homestead i got to save up for 10 years and buy land and and do all that it doesn't have to be that way. You can take baby steps to get there. You can have an experience on the land without owning it under some piece of paper that says you own it. Just being there, being connected to it is the experience. And I think more people should stop stop trying to like have this ultimate solution on how to get on the land and just do it now and work towards it because things will happen when you start putting one foot in front of the other. I started farming in people's front and backyards. I never anticipated being able to be in a position to own land because I didn't have the means. I didn't have any money. I didn't have the skills. But by getting on the land with what was available to me at that time, with which was basically renting some people's front and backyards, got me there. I started building the skills. I started making a living as a farmer, started meeting people in the community. And all these things just start one foot in front of the other. The key thing is that you make decisions and you take actionable steps constantly to move that idea forward. And then things will happen for you along the way. God wants you to do this. And when you're doing it and you're, and you're going in the right direction, you'll experience synchronicity all the time. And it's incredible when it happens. That feel, when, when, I, when I experience these sort of synchronistic moments where everything is aligning and you had a conversation with somebody early in the morning and then somebody later in the day brings that exact same thing up. And it was, how did that happen? How, you know, what are the chances of that happening? I think that's when the universe or God or whatever you want to call it is saying you are on the right path. That's what I've experienced in my life. And I, and I hope more people can do the same. Thank you, Curtis. That is the perfect ending for an amazing, amazing show sharing the spirit behind the farming. We are deeply grateful. Our guest has been Curtis Stone. Thank you so much.